Welcome to Smith Weekly Discussions, an occasional program for our readers and listeners of Smith Weekly Research. Uh, please note this program is a private discussion and everything contained herein is for entertainment and educational purposes only. With that, we hope you're in a comfortable position, along with your favorite beverage, to enjoy the discussion. Before we get into our talk today, we want to say thanks for questions coming from our audience at Smith Weekly, including Luke D., Peter S., Jackie A., and Mike P. We have Peter Reeve on our show today. Peter is executive chairman of Aura Energy, a Mauritania and Sweden-focused uranium project developer. The company is listed on the Australian Securities Exchange under the symbol AEE, and also on the alternative investment market of the London Stock Exchange under the symbol AURA. Peter, welcome to the show. Thanks very much. Peter, I want to start off by covering your background in the natural resource business. Uh, tell us what you've learned over your diverse experience in the business and what you see as keys to success. Um, look, I, I have had a, a wide experience. Um, it's covered um, both working in the field as a metallurgist for you know, 10 to 12 years. Um, and then I have been in management consultant. I've been in the funds management business, corporate advice, both of those in resources. And then I took a number of executive roles in um, operating companies, including very large companies. And uh, we started up some small companies and made them very big. So look, the thing that um, always, and these are things you learn from other people, very experienced people as well. Um, one person said to me once, Peter, you've got to remember that everything starts and finishes with the resource you have in the ground. And without that, uh, you have nothing. So that's probably lesson number one, that everything we do in the natural resources area has to revolve around a resource and you live and die essentially on that resource and the quality of that resource. You know, you can spin whatever you like, but what's in the ground is real and that's what everything's got to revert to. On top of that, you've then got to fund these things and you've got to keep shareholders interested and, and aware and awake to what you're doing. And so I think uh, when you go through that thought process, the first thing you have to understand is you've got to respect the shareholder and you've got to, I've always said you've got to treat equity like it's a very fragile um, eggshell and you've got to hold it very carefully. You can't throw it around, you can't be nasty to it, you, um, you've got to be very gentle with it. So you've got to keep shareholders informed and you've got to access markets to get things funded. So I think, um, you know, the whole funding side of a business becomes really important and that's about keeping shareholders informed and on side but being able to sell a story that's real back to that original resource. And I really only take on companies and projects that I want to work with that I believe could be very, very large projects. And we believe that is the case with Aura. And so if you can get your shareholders interested to the resource in the ground, and you can start to progress through um, the stages and the steps, um, if it's a big company uh, making type asset, and you've got a very good resource in the ground, I think you can keep your shareholders engaged for a long time and you've got to treat them well. And in the end, you know, all things come good. So you've spent some time with Robert Friedland over the years. 
how was the relationship today? Do you still keep in contact? And what important experiences did you gain while working with Robert? Uh, look, Robert Friedland, uh, for my liking, um, when all is said and done with Robert's life in resources, and, and I suppose that'll be until the day he he's not with us any longer, I think he's going to be known as one of the best resources CEOs um, that the world's probably ever known. And I say that because he can now stand up at any conference and list the projects that he has been involved in with the discovery and then pushing them all the way through the development. Um, you know, I worked with him for seven years and I still don't really understand how he does it so well, but he takes something from um, the twinkle of an eye of a geologist and they're not only on all his discoveries, obviously, but he takes out the, the discovery from the twinkle of the eye of the geologist and moves it and progresses it through. And you know what he's doing in Africa at the moment with uh, the copper, the zinc, and the platinum assets is nothing short of extraordinary. And uh, they will be very, very large assets. So I think what Robert, the main thing Robert taught me was that you never really believe what a geologist says until you drill a hole into whatever the geologist is talking about. You know, I think he uh, he learnt that lesson a few times and um, you really need to drill things to find out and Robert's never been short of drilling. So look, I've got a lot of time for Robert. Um, I don't see him so much uh, anymore because we uh, live in other hemispheres and, and Robert just goes off into another stratosphere. Um, but no, he's very, very good at what he does. And um, he's, a, he's a model on how to progress things from geology through to production. There's no doubt about it. He's got a fantastic resume of established projects. And I don't think it's going to be rivaled, at least in my lifetime. Absolutely. And I think uh, he's can, can arguably be among the, the kind of the Bill Gates or the, the Steve Jobs of the resource business, uh, certainly to some degree there. And uh, obviously he has uh, some some roots going back with those gentlemen um, as well. So it's it's really interesting. And then how he can go to really some of the nastiest places on earth and and turn up uh, some fantastic resources, but also get along with, with the governments that he's dealing with and advance through some real nastiness to get the value delivered is also quite uh, impressive. Um, so, well, I wanna ask you another question, changing gears, uh, global uranium supply demand dynamics. Where do you see the breaking point with uranium and where do you see the price of uranium going over the next couple of years? Yeah, look, um, I'm the sort of person who likes to read what others say about uranium. So I'm never going to profess to be the utter expert in um, how many reactors at any one time are coming on, how many kilos goes into that reactor, what's the schedule of the delivery of pounds, et cetera, et cetera. But um, I'm an avid reader and watcher of all that. Um, I think the you know the demand supply curve is covered well by a lot of other people and there seems to be no doubt about it over that next you know two to five years there there is an increasing need for for more uranium um, the the point I've always come back to in this game and I I do think we're edging closer there now um, is the is a point that Cameco's made for quite a while in most of their materials and they made in their most recent um, financial releases um, is that the utilities have had the absolute luxury of 
playing the spot market in the long-term fallout post Fukushima. And, and that's probably worked quite well for them, you know, up to this point. Um, I understand that the utilities now, and these are more from private conversations, are starting to, uh, I don't think get nervous is the word, but maybe they're starting to, to ask questions and, you know, that could turn into a jostle in terms of what happens with their contract positions in 2021 and 2022. Um, you know, private people I talk to who are deeply involved every day in the trading, um, you know, seem to be indicating this. Cameco said a similar thing. So it's like when you go back, and I put a chart on some of my presentations. Um, it's a Cameco chart, and it shows the um, demand supply back in, um, it goes back for the last 15 years, but it shows what happened in 2004, 2005 on long-term contracting. And I always think it's amazing that in, in 2004, they had whatever it was, 70 or 80 million pounds in long-term contracting. And in the following year, in 2005, it was 250 million pounds. And that wasn't a fluke because then it lasted, you know, averaging around that 200 million pounds all the way up until Fukushima. So clearly what happened in 2004, 2005 and the resulting spike in the uranium price was that a number of utilities tried to charge through the buy uranium door all at once. And uh, there was a log jam. And so we know what happens in equities or in commodities or in buying and selling fish and vegetables at the market. When somebody wants something, price goes up, everybody starts screaming and it's hard to get it. So I'm a believer that um, that's going to drive the price. And I do get the sense, if, if we are talking 2021, 2022 being the years that are starting to focus the utilities mind, that um, you know, we're not far off um, some changes in the spot price. I think the recent fall we've had is annoying and it was it was forecast by a couple of people I spoke to. They didn't expect it to be as deep as getting into the 24s, but a number of those expect we could see some movement coming in the middle of the year to the back half of this year. So, yeah, the six months from June, from June 30 through um, might be a bit more interesting. But I know we've all said that before and we've all been hurt and burnt by what's happened with the uranium price. Um, but I do believe that the contracting by utilities will drive it sooner than later. Sure. And yeah, I think we're, we're getting there and uh, every day is a, a day closer to, uh, to when things really start to show up and the cracks, the cracks and what's going on and the supply demand dynamics will start to show up. Uh, yeah. if not, if not, we're already getting closer to that really breaking point. Well, I want to switch over to the other kind of major, uh, mineral that, uh, that R is dealing with. What are your thoughts on vanadium given what we've seen on the price side? Can the vanadium price stay where it remains attractive for these projects or are we kind of headed back down to the kind of the sub $10 a pound range? Every now and again, you see a, a real structural change in, um, in a commodity. And again, we can all say that it's a structural change and then something comes in and it's not a structural change in the end. But you do feel that what happened in China with, uh, you know, there are, there are definitely changing standards in China. I just spent five weeks up in Guangzhou and um, the air was very clean. Um, 
industry very close to residential areas were shut down. Um, people are moving from, let's call it the third and second world of acceptance of standards to first world of standards. Um, the middle class are very sophisticated. Um, they have an expectation of everything being nice. And I suppose then you, you start to see standards so in pollution, standards in construction, standards in building, all starting to move positively. You know, um, concrete cancer, and you see the Italian bridge collapse um, six months ago or whatever it was, um, and you, you see China saying, no, we've got to increase the strength and corrosion resistance of our steels. And so that doubling through all those, those two or three categories of steel for vanadium, I, I think is significant. And I think what's also significant is it's not highly enforced yet. And there has been word about it being enforced. So I think that is as good a serious long-term structural change as we will ever get. Um, you know, I, I go back to the days when copper was 60 cents and um, it's quite remarkable um, to think that within a year to 18 months, copper was $3 and it's really never come back down from there. So the, these occurrences do, do happen. And I believe vanadium has seen that somewhat with the steel change and we haven't really yet got the impact of vanadium radox flow batteries and storage. There's a fantastic chart again in um, some of my presentations if uh, any of the um, listeners go online to our website um, and the Bloomberg Energy Finance chart from 20 to 16 for storage, 2016 to 2030, sorry, for store energy storage. And, you know, we start in 2018 with something like, you know, looks to me like about 15 or 20 gigawatts of storage. And the suggestion is that by 2030, we could be up to 300 gigawatts of storage. Now, that's obviously an extraordinary increase. Um, and I say to people, even if um, that chart is half wrong, or frankly, even if it's two thirds wrong, that storage increase um, is quite amazing. And I think vanadium will be a part of that. I think vanadium is very different to lithium, or I should say vanadium radox flow batteries is very different to lithium batteries. I always consider lithium batteries, uh, I'm not an electrical engineer, but I consider them to be more of a shock absorber than a true energy storage device, like a flow battery is. Um, and so I do believe there's a big future for vanadium. I, I liken a lithium battery I look at what's what's on the cars and what's on the highways and the freeways and the roads. So lithium batteries are the, the retail um, zippy things, the, the cars and the vanadium radox flow batteries are the trucks. Um, it's not about whether one's right and one's not. It's about the fact that we need both to make it function. So long term energy storage is necessary to make the renewable push um, real. Um, and if we don't get the renewable push backed up by storage, then I think renewables runs out of puff. Um, and that's not bad for Aura because then we'll come back to getting more nuclear installed um, so that we've got good baseload, base low emissions um, energy from there. So look, we are, we are playing two sides of the coin, but um, clearly going forward, I see the future that we need good 
strong base load because you need a base load of a system and then you need whatever else you can get. Renewables is not going away and we welcome that, but we, we don't think renewables will push as far into the market unless there's a proper energy storage. And I think lithium helps, but I don't think it's the final answer, but I think long-term storage where you can, you, know, you can hold the power for a long period of time um, is what a flow battery offers. And that's where vanadium comes into play. And so in that sense, um, I don't think we've really seen the push in the vanadium. Uh, we saw some speculation clearly, but we haven't seen the push of real vanadium demand on the price from Radox flow batteries. So in summary, structural changes come based on the steel. I think that's very solid and I think it's here to stay and that could even be enhanced with a bit of enforcement in the Chinese world. And then secondly, uh, when we really do start seeing the, the Radox uh, flow batteries take off, then uh, I think Vanadium can have another uh, run. But um, look, you know, we're, we're pretty comfortable with our project at the current price, but uh, anything more would be good. So if you had to pick one, looking at the current situation for uranium and then also for vanadium, where would you hang your hat? Tough question. It's like asking which is your favourite child. Um, I um, <laughs> I think that um, uh, it's hard to choose. <laughs> Look, I, I think we're called Aura Energy because uh, of the fact that we are involved in energy. Um, I think the world has got it wrong on nuclear. The West mainly and that we're all a bit frightened of it so um, I really like uranium that said there's probably more tangible supply in uranium um, so if I was to if I was to hang my hat on anything and I could be assured that the vanadium radox flow battery was going to be a serious player in the market I'd hang it on vanadium okay and let me let me ask you this uh, Peter uh, I want to get your thoughts on Section 232 petition in the United States. Uh, what do you see happening there and what impacts do you think it'll have on the global uranium market? It's very complicated, isn't it? And it's uh, probably slightly unfair to ask an Australian, but uh, <laughs> uh, look, I, I think it's very hard to walk away from the thought that um, there would have to be ultimately a two-tier market globally for uranium one inside the tent and one on the outside of the tent. And the, the two tiers of pricing that would come is complicated by the fact that the US can't supply all of the uranium that it requires to its own, to its own utilities. So uh, it'll take some settling down, but um, initially um, in the two tiered market, say in phase one, I suppose I view that the, the price of uranium inside the, the US tent would be higher and the shock would be the rest of the market shut out of the US and therefore the external price being lower. That, and I don't know if phase one lasts for a day or a month or a year. Um, you'd have to ask the market experts on that. Beyond that, you'd then say, okay, so the US doesn't have enough material initially um, to supply itself and that would now inspire US companies to uh, reopen production, develop more mines, all those things, and, and try and get back into balance. So in the intervening period, call that phase two, um, you would see demand coming from inside the tent to outside the tent, and outside the tent's prices would start to rise. Um, how much they rise, very difficult 
for me to make any guess, but you see a rise. And then phase three is US gets into balance in some years um, and the the price outside the tent will probably, in fact, the price inside the tent and outside the tent stabilise, drop, maybe come off any peaks that they might have seen in the adjustment. And, um, and then it's curious as to know whether the price inside the tent and outside the tent would be the same or not. But um, yeah, I, it's hard to get away from the fact you can't, that there's going to be a two-tier market if that comes in. Yeah, I think it'll be interesting. We ask that question a lot uh, to a lot of the guests, um, and, and it's just interesting to get the different perspectives as we get closer and closer to that report finally being made public so people can take a look at what the decision is from, from the president there in the United States. So uranium jurisdictions, what places around the world do you like best for uranium during this cycle? And are there any other interesting companies or key veterans in the sector that you'd like to, like to mention that investors should really pay attention to, maybe for information or to watch? Or initially has been put together with a group of people out of the original, what was called Shell Billiton here in Australia and globally. So it was the Shell Minerals arm. So we have really very good technical people and we sort of pride ourselves on that. So we made two discoveries in uranium um, in Mauritania, as you mentioned, and also um, initially up in um, Sweden, which is now uh, our vanadium project. And, you know, and they, it was great to make two virgin discoveries, and we're still trying to develop those and get them up. Um, so I think there are parts of Africa, and you've got to watch the political risk aspects, where it's very interesting for, um, for uranium. And the hurdles to, um, you know, they want development, they need, the countries need development. And so the hurdles to get uh, projects up and running uh, accompany um, the development of a country. And so that's positive for getting projects moving. It doesn't mean you drop your standards by any way, stretch your imagination, because, you know, the standards for us are global. Anywhere you operate, you've got to operate well. Um, but I, so I do think Africa is, is very good. You know, the population in Africa, somebody predicted a little while ago between now and 2050 is going to go from, I think it's one and a half billion to four and a half billion. So I think Africa is a market for anything and, um, in that intervening period. So uranium mines, uh, nuclear power, I think it's, it's, it's an interesting continent. We also like Sweden and that whole, um, Eastern Bloc, um, Estonia, Lithuania, all those areas through there, that whole band where the shales exist, I think is interesting. Um, and, uh, and, and, you know, that's our, that's our perspective. Um, we, we aren't going to go into another country. We're not going to come to North America in Saskatchewan and start to compete with the people who are already doing it there. So from Aura's point of view, we are, Europe to Eastern Europe and Africa. Um, look, as far as people um, in the uranium sector go who think we should watch, um, you know, there, is, there isn't a particular person. I think a number of them have now rolled over and turned over. I, I personally think we should all keep a very good watch in every quarter and financial. We should read what Cameco are saying in the market because they're so influential and they're very good at what they do. Um, so I think as far as information goes, um, they should, uh, everybody should keep on watching what they do. As, as weird as that might sound to some people, a junior mining company saying that. Um, 
I also think that people need to really have a plug into the traders in the market. Um, it's a weird, small, illiquid market and you see something happen on the price and you make an assumption that it could be X, that in fact it's M. And then you ring the trader or the people you know in that aspect of the market. And these are people who are trading contracts daily and there's a completely different reason. I always find the um, perspective in the market of what we think it is versus what a trader tells me is really happening in the back box to have a lot of um, a lot of uh, scope, a lot of breadth. And so, yeah, I think that's an important thing for people to understand what is actually going on in the trading market. How much was traded to make that price fall or rise $5? I think they're important things. People have got to keep on, on touch of that. So, But apart from that, um, no, there's nobody else I would suggest. So let's talk RA Energy for a moment. Uh, let's get into everything there. We'll start with the company structure and so forth. So right now there's a market cap coming in about 12 million Australian dollars, if my math is correct. Um, what do you attribute the current share price decline to? Is it company or larger market sentiment driven at this point? Oh, look, I mean, I would, um, I would. So we we've put a few releases out on this lately. Um, there's a there's a there's a combination of a few things. Look, I, I think it's it's difficult to ascertain um, what the fall of a uranium price of five dollars did to us uh, more recently. Um, but primarily, uh, we had conducted a placement in February, and the placement, um, as we reported to the market, um, we had an expectation that we would get a certain level of funding, and that didn't quite um, get achieved and also we had um, some investors um, withdraw from that placement uh, very unexpectedly and that put us in quite a tight position um, market uh, then and mainly retail market um, make wild suggestions on all of the blogs and um, and said that we're going to do a very low equity raising etc etc um, and we didn't. Um, we went and sought some finance out of New York um, with a group who we've had a very good and long-term relationship with. Um, that's a, one of the more mezzanine type uh, convertible note products. There was even some speculation that that's bad for the company. And, um, and that's never been the case with that company. In fact, the last time we did a product with the company uh, they were a 10% shareholder in us for three to four years without selling a share. So um, I've said to a number of people that right now our business is in the best shape it's ever been in. And, and I can explain this further later if you like. Uh, and we've got the lowest share price. And, and that happens. Um, our controllables and what we are trying to deliver are the the feasibility study for the Tyrus uranium project, the scoping study for the vanadium project, both uh, around the middle of the year, and then to get some activity on our very prospective gold base metal and battery metal exploration in Mauritania. So, um, yeah, I think there's just been a, uh, a flutter in the market around whether we were going to come and do a low cost equity raising and people sell down so they can 
um, get access to that. Um, and the other thing I would say, and sorry, I, I was remiss to, to not mention, um, during the course of the metallurgical study, we we had a really unusual response uh, in a clay earlier in the year, and we had to go back and check that. Um, our guys internally did a fantastic job, um, sorted out the problem, and we've now run that, uh, like any changes in the process of the capital through the system in the DFS. <clears throat> um, that uh, delayed the DFS by another few months, and so we have had a number of delays. But frankly, um, we're comfortable with the delay. I know the market doesn't like it because at least we found this quite technical issue and we've solved it during the test phase and the study phase, not in the operating phase where it would have been a lot more expensive. So whilst it's been a little painful, um, it's very positive because we are now fully aware of what it is and it, it changes some of our equipment and it definitely changes some of our operating practice. So um, that was the other thing. Those delays have probably um, annoyed um, some people. That said, with a $25 uranium price, um, you know, we don't want to rush the decision on, on the project anyway. So um, a little bit more time. Um, and, and, you know, in that period, we were a bit short of money, therefore, because of the delays and what have you. So, yeah, yeah. maybe that was our perfect storm. Uh, but the, the share price <coughs> fall in no way uh, signals anything internally in the company going on with the projects. Like I say, we believe projects, all the projects are in the best position they've ever been in right this moment. So let's talk company structure for a moment. Can you give us the shares out? And then also, can you highlight some of the key ownership uh, of those shares that you'd like to mention? The shares out at the moment are around about uh, $1.1 um, maybe a little more. And largest shareholder is a group called ASEAN, the value fund. They've actually just put out a new substantial um, just this morning, and uh, they've gone they've bought another 20 million shares um, given where the price is. Um, so they've gone to from 11.7% now to uh, over 13% anyway. So they are our largest shareholder. The, um, the other large shareholders, New York Fund, Lind, and also a couple of high net worth individuals um, in Australia. So again, we're in a situation where around about 25% um, of the register is held with just two or three people. There was the other thing that in the last little while with Aura's share price, we had a very, very large shareholder um, that owned up to 30, it was a group of three investors out of the UK, essentially aggregated by one um, financial planner. And, uh, and they, they essentially sold out um, they sold out because of the delay getting the grant of the gold tenements, which was a little unfair given they initially invested in the company based on tiers and put an enormous amount of money into the company. So they sold out and just recently um, as a part of what triggered the very recent sell down in the last, even last week, was them selling their last 70 or 80 million shares. So that has also um, played on our share price. Uh, so we did have a, a big block there. And, and I've been impressed, frankly, how the company, um, up to at least recently, absorbed all those shares. 
So give us give us some info on uh, cash in the bank, uh, expected what you might be spending in 2019, uh, what's left of it here, and then also if there's any any near-term financings that are coming up that, sh that maybe investors should be aware of. Yeah, no, look, we've just um, completed a $2 million financing, um, and that will get us to the end of the DFS uh, for Tiris and get the scoping study out for Hagen. So there is no near-term uh, financing, and we're well-funded as we speak. And then also, can you uh, highlight a few of the key uh, management team members for us that you'd like to mention? I have a group of uh, three or four people um, who head the company, and we have a small team in Mauritania and a small group of uh, contract employees in Sweden as well. The, uh, the CFO of the company and corporate man is a guy called John Madden. He's 30 years with Rio Tinto. Um, he's very experienced. He's, a, he's an excellent um, finance person and, and a deep corporate thinker uh, and a very hard worker. Um, he's worked at the upper echelons of Rio Tinto for many, many years. Um, my principal geologist is a guy called Neil Clifford. I would argue he's one of Australia's best geologists, uh, but he's very understated and very modest. Um, uh, he, he found 20 million ounces of gold in Australia. Um, he was associated with the discovery of the Tyrus uranium mine as well. So uh, he's a, he's a first-class um, geologist. And then I have um, the younger member of our team, uh, 37, 38, is Dr. Will Goodall. And he's a metallurgist, um, again, uh, very experienced. Um, First Quantum, BHP, have had him and still have him at different times on contract uh, for different operations around the globe. And, um, and he is the person who solved most recently that clay issue. It was, a, it was an astounding study going back to first principles um, and getting the issue solved within a few weeks. So, yeah, Will Goodall, our principal metallurgist, uh, they, they are the main um, players in the team. And then we've got a, a principal engineer at the moment, Alan Caden, um, who's doing the, the Tiris study for us as well. So let's move to the Tiris project. Kind of give us an overview, and then I've got a few other questions to ask you on it. Yeah, look, Tiris has got 52 million in inferred resource. Um, we recently, uh, last year, put out the, the upgrade there. We haven't worked the whole 52 for what we could get on measured and indicated, but we got 17 million pounds um, on measured and indicated. And yeah, obviously that'll form the core of what we're talking about in the Tiris project. You know, I can't disclose yet where we are with cost and capital on the definitive feasibility study, but um, you know, in the scoping study going back 2014-15, we were um, at around about 45 million US and an operating cost of around about $20 a pound. Um, the obviously, you know, you you could imagine there's there would have been escalation in that time on the capital. Uh, and, and what I will say is where we're seeing the study and the capital and operating go at the moment um, is that it's um, it's in pretty good shape relative to the scoping study. Um, I think you know you've always got to assume numbers are slightly higher, uh, both capital and operating, when you go in and do more detailed study, and that's not going to be different for us here, but um, not exceedingly so, and, and you know, in an abandoned acceptability. 
um, with a great deal more certainty, obviously. We expecting to finish the DFS um, around July this year, uh, and that's something we released uh, in the last few weeks as a part of the market update when we did the financing. Um, we are engaged with a group out of London who are looking at export credit agency finance, which is where a, so a sovereign nation essentially lends development capital, and in return for that loan, the company receiving those loans engages with their industry to buy the majority of the project equipment from that country. Um, it's a very efficient and um, uh, modest price financing. So we're, we're in that process and we hope to get some indications of that in the sort of like the August period. Um, once we get the financing in place, um, and we can push the button on the project because Tiris is a small footprint project and, uh, and, and a, really a, relative to a lot of other peers, um, low capex, um, we can get this project, we believe, built within a year. And so, you know, we're saying production in 2020, late 2020 to 2021, I suppose, is, is a range you'd have to put in there. Okay, and on the financing side, give us a little bit more info if you can. Can you share with us what the expected mix is? Is is it going to be all debt for the project finance, or is there going to be some equity involved, royalty, any any offtake, or otherwise being considered? Yeah, you can get up to eighty five percent coverage from export credit agency finance. Um, I would think that's going to be probably too high for say Mauritania, so I think it's going to be in the range of um, the seventy to eighty percent debt coverage and the rest in equity. Um, and uh, we signed an offtake late last year to early this year, which we've been talking about for some time. Um, and we covered about 800,000 pounds at an average price of $44 a pound um, over the scheduled period. And really in fixed pricing, um, we were really careful not to give away too much in any one year. So it varies between 15 and 30% of that, of any of that contract production is at fixed price. So we've still got a lot of upside to, um, to any spikes in the uranium price. So we were, it was important to do that. And, and that offtake is important to the export credit agencies when they come looking at the finance. So with that uh, Curzon uh, arrangement, to clarify, the deal with them provides no upfront capital for construction, and the deal is essentially to buy product once it is produced and ready to ship. Is that correct? That is correct. Yeah, that, that sounds good, and I, I certainly wanted to highlight uh, the fact that that was in place uh, with Aura, because I know some of our audience probably that are listening is probably not familiar with some of the past events that happened with the company, and so I wanted to make sure that that sure. was covered. So just to reiterate, the, sure. the really important point there is we've got a we do retain a significant exposure to the the uranium price upside, even with those um, forward contracts in place. Can you give us any highlight or any ballpark? I guess would be a better word for really where the all-in costs are going to land. I mean. The, the deal seemed to come come around with an average price of around 44. Uh, would you say the all-in costs are, are, are obviously doing doing better than that? 
Oh, absolutely, and by some margin. But I, I won't go much further than to say that. But that was obviously an important point for us. I mean, if we've got cash costs um, in the scoping study of um, $19.40, uh, and that's going back, that's the old figure. Now we're, we're putting the new figure out. I've indicated that it's, it's going to be somewhat higher than that, but not aggressively so. Um, you know, we always thought that our all-in costs versus the 1940 was around the 26, 27 mark. So you can start to get some feeling for um, for where we will be versus whatever new number we put out. But no, we've got okay. a we've got a good a good margin between that average. Okay, and on the project advancement as far as construction and so forth, now with uranium where it is today, do you see the project developed and commissioned by the end of 2020, irrespective of the uranium price? And if not, at what uranium price will you really pull the trigger on that construction decision? It's a good question. Um, and I I actually was saying to a shareholder just in the last week or so, you know, July's a new universe. And um, let's see where we are in the middle of the year. And uh, we can never, you know, we've got a lot of decisions like your 232, uh, um, like what I was talking about, whether the utilities are going to make moves sooner than later. Um, so yeah, to be quite honest, I'm I'm going to keep a very open mind, and I don't know what July and August is going to look like. Um, you know, I but circling back around, um, I suppose with the price holding quite firmly and nicely for a good period of time at twenty eight and twenty nine dollars a pound. Um, you know, I was always believing that the next time, I, I don't think the equity markets and the People inside the club, the uranium club, have always thought, no, uranium price go up. This is real. But I think people just outside the club who are who like resources but are agnostic uranium, let's say, um, were sitting there not yet convinced that a twenty-eight or twenty-nine dollar price uh, signalled that the uranium sector was now officially on fire. And and I have always believed that we needed uh, the uranium price to be in the early 30s to mid 30s for that group of agnostics who are sitting outside and watching very closely and are knowledgeable about uranium but haven't, as Robert Friedland used to say, been tempted with their um, hand to wallet um, reflex. You know, I think the those people aren't yet convinced. So I believe that we need in the early 30s to mid 30s before we officially see the uranium sector you know excited again and and that's a good time to to push off a project i'm not really giving you an indication as to whether or not we've got a trigger price for what we will what we will do um that's a board decision and it's a decision that's going to have a lot of other inputs including the quality of the financing we get <clears throat> I'll just preserve my thoughts on that, but it gives you, gives you a little bit of a flavor of what we're thinking. If we're at that $35 mark and the, and the project gets constructed and commissioned and we're still at that $35 mark, will Curzon come in and uh, honor and, and, and purchase as stated in the agreement, even if the uranium price isn't quite up there yet? Yep, they would have to. That's, that's, what, our, that's what our contract says. What is your approach to long-term contracting? So I know that you know with Tiris we're, we're going to have you know it, it's a it's a smaller project, 
um, and quite, you know, the production could probably be absorbed uh, pretty easily with some other options like spot and, and trading house uh, arrangements. Do you see any direct utility agreements coming out of, of the project or do, you, or do you see that the production profile is better matched using spot sales and, and maybe an intermediary for deals uh, to sell off the uh, production? Yeah, look, um, uh, some time ago, about 18 months ago now, I had some pretty significant meetings during one of the um, conferences uh, with a lot of serious utility players. And there's quite a lot of interest um, in projects like Aura. Even though we're a small company and the production's small, um, there are a group of utilities who are very interested in seeing alternative sources of supply arise. Um, you know, they want to see other projects up and running. Uh, so no, we were uh, we were very warmly. Um, regarded by some extraordinarily large utilities and had very good conversations about what we were trying to do. Um, you can imagine 18 months to two years ago was very early for us to be talking to utilities, but I could only imagine um, revisiting those people now uh, that the warmth would still be there and the interest would still be there. And just, you know, I think even at the margin, they're interested in diversity of supply. Um, so I, I think we would we would get even from some of the big players um, interest in in taking contracts, you know. But again, going back the last year or so, um, it's almost um, well. Why even approach the utilities just now? I mean, I think we need to be in a little bit more of an agitated environment before the conversation between utilities and particularly companies like ours has any meaningful output. So, you know, I haven't engaged with them in the last uh, year or so, but um, given where we're heading now, um, over the next six months, it becomes a phase when I do start to uh, revisit that. So in Mauritania, give us the give us the status from the government side on policy with regards to in-country uranium handling and export regulations. Give us the status of that, and then also tell us... Uh, from a, from a jurisdictional standpoint, for the audience who may not be familiar with the country, kind of give us just a feel for the jurisdiction as far as, uh, you know, stability and so forth. Yeah. Um, look, you can um, you can read some things about Mauritania, and uh, to be frank, if you read some of these things, you'd never go there. Um, we've, um, we've been there now for 10 years. We've never had an incident. We've never used uh, any form of armed guards uh, anywhere in the country, and that includes going all the way out into the Sahara Desert where our project is. Um, we keep in touch with the authorities, uh, but yeah, we've, we've never had any incidents. Um, I also know the executive of Glencore who were developing the ASCAP iron ore project there for a billion dollars, and uh, they were the same. They had been there, he was an Australian guy in fact, had been there for eight years and had never had an incident and never used armed guards as well. So, you know, just um, it, it's, it's a really, uh, safe country from our point of view um, to operate. People forget that it was a French Republic, um, or a French colony, I should say, and that there is an enormous embassy there uh, of the French. The, the, the French government's still deeply involved in Mauritania. Quite some thousands of school kids go into the French embassy on a daily basis uh, for education. 
Um, and uh, so, you know, that brings a level of stability um, to the country as well. Um, the US government only recently completed a $300 million uh, build of an embassy as well. Um, I've, the US government considers it a beachhead on the west coast of Africa. Um, so again, as we know, once the US builds an embassy for $300 million, it's going to take hell and high water to get them out of there. So um, they're not going anywhere. Um, you know, there's been joint um, joint um, security exercises, the Sahil 5, where they, they work up in those desert areas. Um, and yeah, but very much. We, we've never had an issue there. Um, we find the government good to work with. Like it's Africa, there's always uh, cultural differences and um, differences in how government versus companies expect contracts to be um, executed. For example, we didn't get these gold tenements granted for three years. It was very frustrating to us and there were reasons inside the government why it took time. We've now had them granted and it's a frustration we we lived and we lived with because we had to say, well, that's Africa, and and so there's still those differences that occur, but um, it's the growth in the country is extraordinary, um, the stability is very strong, um, and we have not had any issues um, that would see us impede the project. So um, so that's been the positive for us on the uranium regulation. Um, yeah, it's it's still somewhat in its infancy. Uh, but we are working together with the government. They have a radiation authority. It's mainly around the medical side of radiation, um, but they have, knowing we're coming, been very much involved in, um, in, in what we've done. We did a really extensive ESIA. Um, the government congratulated us and said it's the best ESIA, environmental social impact assessment, that they'd ever seen. Um, and that laid out very clearly all of the standards for transport, for handling, for safety, for uranium. So it, it's a it's a learning path between both of us. Right, and I think it's just simple. You know, it's a good probably a good starting point would just be simply a uh, cut and paste copy of of, of some of the uh, the main maybe. Uh, maybe for uh, Africa, maybe Niger or Namibia for exportation of uranium and, and handling and so That's forth, fun. and really just hand them, hand them a copy and say, hey, here's here's two to three copies of different exporting nations. We'd like you to implement some form of this and, uh, you know, go from there. Uh, you know, you don't have to reinvent the wheel, of course. Um, yeah. You know, if, you wanna, if you want to. If you want to build a bridge, uh, just jump on Google and go to some of the departments of transportation in the United States or Australia, and I think you can find a number of publicly available drawings and specifications. <laughs> yeah, that's right. No, exactly. I want to move over to uh, Hagen for a moment uh, in Sweden. Give us an overview of this one, and then I've got also a couple more uh, questions on that. Yeah, look, Hagen um, has been a polymetallic project for a long period of time, and um, and we studied the vanadium previously in other scoping studies, which related more to uranium. Uh, and now with the vanadium price uh, having risen so well, you know, we've dusted off and we've, we've cut the resource with respect to vanadium. Um, what we have there is 15 uh, billion pounds of vanadium. That's the global number that obviously everybody's got to talk about. 
when they talk about their vanadium project, for me, it's it's not so not as meaningful uh, that number. But what is meaningful is when we cut recut our resource on vanadium cutoffs, we ended up with a, um, a high grade zone, which um, is around 90 million tons of 0.42 percent V205. Um, and that is within 20 metres of surface and not deeper than 100 metres. Um, that was a very good find for us because it's very uh, contained. And um, again, if people go onto the presentations, you can see some very nice images, um, both of the, the cross section and in plan of, of that. There's a, of the 90 million tonnes, there's a, a 49 million tonne contiguous zone of that high grade material and there's around about 430 million pounds um, in that and and that would equate to around about 15 to 20 years of mine life um, if we were producing five percent of the current vanadium market um, the um, the project um, is at the stage where uh, those numbers I quoted are really inferred resource. So for the last two months, we've been doing infill drilling on the project. We've drilled another 22, 23 holes, and we've just completed that work. The assays are being done as we speak, and that will lead to a resource upgrade um, by June. And um, then we will put the scoping study out for the vanadium Hagen project uh, in July again, most likely. And so the company has planned to spin out this project into a separate company. Why does the company see that as the best route for shareholders and what can shareholders expect in terms of exposure to the new company and Hagen uh, via their existing share ownership in, in Aura? When the, um, when the sun comes up in Sweden, the sun goes down in Melbourne. And it's not an ideal way to try and run a project, um, even though you know you can have a management team over there as well. Uh, the management team we've got there is is more of an operating level, not an executive level. So we've long thought that the best way to get Hagen operating is to have an executive management team in the country speaking Swedish, waking up in Swedish daylight hours and working the project in Swedish daylight hours. That then needs funding and that's a good thing because that drives local and connected sources of funding. So that's, that's been the concept behind the idea. I don't like the idea of doing an in situ, um, sorry, an in species distribution um, for the project um, because I, I think they're quite uncontrolled in the market when they're done. So we came up with this concept that we would do a corporate transaction or an IPO. We would uh, spin out 20 to 30%, spin out the vehicle, Vanitas Battery Metals, um, and, and say sell 20 to 30% of that company to new shareholders or a particular corporate is still a possibility. Um, and, and we would retain 70 or 80%. Uh, and then we, as we, and we wanted to do that so we retained value for all our shareholders for as long as we could. And as we progressed the development, um, we would sell down that stake um, to maybe, you know, if the dream came true to say zero in five to eight years. 
Um, I would like to sell the last 20% of Aura's holding of Vanitas battery metals. If we go that IPO route, I'd like to sell that last um, 20% for two to $300 million. And, um, and you know, I quite seriously believe that this project could be that big. It's a, it's a very, very valuable project and we've got a lot of belief in it. So um, the, the, the spin out in essence activated activates the project and activates a, a work program in Sweden. And then it also allows for the real value of Hagen to be separately recognized and then attributed directly into the Aura share price. And so that's about it in a nutshell. We think it's good value for shareholders because if we come out and Hagen's worth 20 or $30 million initially in an IPO, then that's obviously gonna reflect into the Aura share price. Okay, and, and on that too, just a little bit, the uranium component of that project, if uranium prices start to rise uh, and we get, just going back to the same example, up to the $35 mark on uranium. Uh, when does uranium really start to take over at that project? Um, look, uh, listeners may not be aware, um, the, the Swedish government has, uh, has banned uranium mining in the last um, 12 to 18 months. So um, under the current legislation, that's not possible. So this is now a vanadium and polymetallic project only, not uranium. Okay, and tell us about uh, the permitting there. Yeah, look, the, the permits, uh, the whole permitting process is very transparent and very clear in um, in Sweden. Um, you, know, you, you clearly have to work with the community uh, a lot there and, and get them to understand the project, but the actual steps in, um, in what you do with respect to the mines department and, and the government are, are very, very clear and they're fairly standard to what we would expect in any other country. Um, with respect to recovering uh, byproduct uranium, um, that is uh, permitted. The, the rule in the legislation essentially said that you cannot sell the uranium for its fish oil purposes. Um, so we would be uh, taking out, because the quantities in the the Hagen vanadium project is so much smaller than what they would have been in the vanadium in the uranium project. Uh, we are only recovering a small quantity of uranium, and we would be complexing that up um, into a gypsum or some other product and uh, and just storing it. So um, that will be okay. You mentioned community for just a moment. Uh, how is the sentiment there towards mining in general, and what do you what do you see being needed to be done on that front to kind of get the local community support for the project? Uh, what's what's going on there, and how is the local community at the project? Yeah, look, it's um, it's always a process you've got to go through. The community is a rural farming community, and um, they have uh, a, a big jobs need in in the area. So there is support from various groups who want to see industry and want to see um, the project go ahead. There's clearly um, other groups that don't like mining, and but that's the same the world over, and we've got to deal with them. Um, Aura is uh, progressing twofold on this project. We want to develop the Hagen um, vanadium mine and that project, but we also in the region are looking to establish a battery manufacturing uh, facility 
um, most likely components of a vanadium redox flow battery. And that's an important um, sort of add-on to this project from our point of view. We, we think there's not many mines that naturally lend themselves to a vertical integration into a, um, a downstream product, but we think a vanadium redox flow battery out of a mine is quite a possibility given what we're seeing in South Africa um, with the players down there. Um, so um, we're, uh, we're in talks with um, some battery manufacturers, some very interesting companies. And, and so, you know, Sweden is very, very focused on a green future and very focused because of that green future on metals that support the green future and manufacturing that supports the green future. So uh, whilst we are putting a mine in place, we're also uh, helping them establish the green credentials for green metals going forward. So, um, you know, yes, you get some uh, anti-mining sentiment, but there's a very strong government agenda to go green metals and electrification and uh, storage, and we play a role in that. So um, we've still got some work to do. But um, I think our proposition, in a broad sense, covering both a mine and a battery manufacturing uh, facility and an establishment in the region, means that we are going to be uh, accepted um, in a different way to if we were just a, a mine on its own. So um, yeah, there's a, a lot of work to do to get, uh, get everything done, but um, we're positive that given Sweden's broader agenda, we fit in very well to that. And you're finding that with a number of other companies up there who have now got battery type metals. Yeah, it's interesting, interesting angle to it and, and with the uh, the manufacturing component part. Um, so what are the plans up there on the project for, for 2019 and 2020? What do you see being completed as far as maybe the, the spin out and, and, and some of the other work on site? Yeah, um, it's an interesting location, and so um, obviously it gets cold there in winter. Um, the the water table in the area where we our project is 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 quite high, so it's quite difficult to drill uh, in the summer. So yeah, in the in the coldest period of the time, that's when we do all our drilling. So we've just finished, as I said, a good drilling program over a couple of months of uh, 22, 23 holes. Um, Really, the work now is going to be in-house with assays and the uh, upgrade of the resource. So we're trying to upgrade that um, that 49 million ton high-grade zone um, to a measured and indicated, and that allows us to release our scoping study. Uh, in October last year, um, we had a company over here complete our capital and operating estimates uh, for the project. Uh, we have a developed um, process flow sheet for the project now. We're really quite advanced. And, and this comes, Andrew, from the fact that we've been working on this project for a long period of time. Um, and all of that work, even though a lot of it was towards uranium, can now be used for this vanadium project. So we, we've got a lot of understanding. With the capital and operating estimates and the resource upgrade, we will put together the scoping study and have that out, as I said, middle of the year. That will then help us drive the financing for that project. So the ECA financing that we are looking at um, is a combined package for both the Tiris and the Hagen project. Um, and, you know, we're hoping that 
with a positive ECA response to that combined finance package, that then drives additional interest in what we're doing and, and that then sparks the, the, the next um, position which is getting this IPO or this corporate life born in Sweden for the Hagen project. And, and we then become somewhat a, um, a shareholder in the project, although we will have both executive positions and board positions in, in the new vehicle over there. But we think, you know, sometime in that second half, we want to get this, uh, this next corporate phase for Hagen set up so that we can drive the project. Okay. No, that sounds great and uh, interesting, interesting stuff going on. Um, so there's some other projects, uh, exploration projects going on uh, that you recently, uh, you mentioned actually uh, earlier. What's the status of those? And kind of give us an overview. I hear they're also with some other metals as well. Yeah, look, we have um, these two fabulous tenements in Mauritania, Tayet and Bella. One of the tenements, Bella, which maybe some of the listeners are aware of a company called All Gold um, in Toronto, uh, they have the tenements to the north of us. They've had some quite spectacular gold results over a period of time, um, and they're trying to pull those together. On that tenement for us, all of the structures that All Gold drill run straight into our tenement. Um, and so their perspective, not only for gold, but we've had some quite amazing nickel and cobalt hits. Um, it's an Archean greenstone belt, uh, both the, the tenements, both the belts we're talking about. And um, on the Bella tenement, we drilled, um, or the, I should say, the, the previous owners who actually, in fact, were associated with some people at Aura, um, drilled a 1.6 kilometre long fence of holes, essentially got uh, just shallow holes, but essentially got um, pretty well all near 1% uh, nickel values. And then we drilled one in 10 of the, uh, tested one in 10 of the pulps and got high, high values of cobalt up to almost 0.6%. Um, so that's that's interesting on that belt, and I, and I mentioned that one first simply because maybe people are more aware of all gold. Um, on the Tayet belt, um, we are about 40 kilometres. It's an Archean greenstone belt again, just to repeat. Um, it's virgin Archean greenstone belt, which you know, if that was in Australia in Kalgoorlie, there'd be several hundred companies on it. Um, there's a fairly good anomaly to the north of us, and that's the Tazius gold mine, which has got 21 million ounces of gold. So to have uh, a greenstone belt. We have about half of that belt, and Tazius has the other half, um, as in Kinross. Uh, you know, to have a, a small gold anomaly like 21 million ounce deposit, and that's the only discovery on that belt, gives us a lot of um, hope for the future. As I said, Neil Clifford, um, he essentially found the Sunrise deposit in Australia. He's found 20 million ounces of gold. He's an Archean greenstone belt expert, and um, he initially conceived this uh, project with another company and we were able to buy it very cheaply at one stage. So yeah, we're very positive on the exploration upside um, for that and uh, for both those tenements. But we've got to remain focused on our main game too, which is to get this Tiris project up and running and to get the study for Tiris and the study for Hagen completed. Uh, but um, you know, we are searching for ways to get funding for the gold in its own right. So we can go forward and put some holes in there because um, we think it's very, very prospective. 
interesting to see what happens with that and and uh, how you guys focus on that once maybe tears gets up and and some cash flow is starting to move and all that good stuff. So, uh, why should investors be taking a stake in RA Energy today? What would you say to potential investors? If I spoke to investors um, uh, six to twelve months ago, um, I couldn't I couldn't put my hand on my heart and say that all of our projects are in the strongest position they've been ever. But now, with the fact that, you know, we've solved our recent little technical issue on Tyrus, we have got a DFS um, about to be released. It's imminent in the next few months. Um, the results there look quite good. Uh, the fact that we've now completed drilling um, on Hagen and we are uh, in a vanadium battery metal with that project, and that's close to a study, and that we've now had the tenements granted, and this is all happening in this six-month period, and that we've been through a perfect storm with respect to financings and attitude and what have you. So, yeah, I, I repeat what I said earlier in the call. The business is in the strongest position it's ever been in, and all of my directors will attest to that, and we've got the lower, shareholder, uh, the lower share price for a period of time. So I think it's a fabulous opportunity. I only came on board to work this company I had run previously Ivanhoe Australia with Robert Friedland. We both, we co-founded it and uh, we took that to a billion and a half dollars. Um, I've always believed that Aura one day could be a very, very large company of that order. I still believe it now. Um, it just takes time. It takes a lot of work. You've got to keep on progressing. When you progress, it takes money. Shareholders get um, upset with dilution. But you, you, you've got to progress. You've got to keep on spending money. You've got to put real runs on the board. And I think that by the middle of this year, we will have real runs on the board with the Tyrus DFS completed. We've got real runs on the board there with respect to offtake and finance, and it's fully permitted. You know, that's, a, that's probably one word I didn't use in this talk. It's a fully permitted project. Not many people can say it. And with the low capital on that project, relative to a lot of the peers where there's hundreds of millions of dollars of capital, um, I think it's one of the most compelling resource developments for uranium in the world as we speak now. It's not large, but it's very, very compelling financially. So uh, they are the main reasons. I think we've just got runs on the board in each of our three major projects and the share price is very low. So how can investors reach out to the company for more information? Uh, we have a website with a, an info contact. Uh, it is auraenergy.com.au. So they can write an email and I'll respond, I respond to pretty well all of those emails. Uh, they can also call the number uh, at the bottom of any of our press releases and um, you'll get to talk to me or one of the technical people. Well, Peter, we really appreciate you coming on today and, and good luck with progress at Aura. Andrew, thank you very much.